Good morning, Doxa. Today's scripture reading will be coming from Romans 9, 19 through Romans 10 to chapter 4. Right? Voice forward. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the motor? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in every very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the numbers of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness for, to everyone who believes. This has been the reading of God's word. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a joy to be with you again as we look at the book of Romans together. My name is David, and I've been at Doxa here since the beginning of this year as a church planting resident. Um, And my wife and my two daughters and I, we plan on being at Doxa for uh, the next two years. And then Lord willing, we will be moving to Massachusetts to plant a church that will serve as a gospel outpost for years to come. And and as I've said before, I'm going to mention Massachusetts and the need for healthy churches in New England every time I get an opportunity to stand before you on Sunday mornings. And I do this because I hope that the Holy Spirit will remind you to pray for us. Some of you, uh, you may feel led to give financially towards this cause. And others of you, you may feel a prompting from God 
to join us in moving to New England for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. I'm, I'm praying that that, will, that that will happen here. So the last, the last two weeks, I've given you a statistic or a fact about the state of Christianity in Massachusetts, and I wanna, I wanna continue that trend for you here this morning. So Massachusetts ranks dead last of all the states in the percentage of people who believe that God exists with absolute certainty. There are, there are a lot of people in Massachusetts that are, are far, far from God. And I'm, um, I'm praying and hoping that some of you will, will join me in praying um, for the sake of the gospel in New England and that some of you, like I mentioned before, will, will come with us. And, and, uh, and just pray, pray that God, um, I'll give you something to pray for here, pray that God would continue to till the soil in New England and pray, pray that he would bless the gospel work that, that's already taking place there. So this morning, we are going to, to dive deep once again into Romans chapter 9 and then the first part of chapter 10. And there's, there's an, old, an old saying, and some of you may have heard this before, but it, it, goes, it goes like this. It says, Scripture is like a river, broad and deep, shallow enough here for the lamb to go waiting, but deep enough there for the elephant to swim. And the book of Romans, it has plenty of places where the elephant can swim. And this, this section that we're in now, Romans chapters 9 through 11, are some of the deepest waters in all of Scripture. And church, when you're, when you're in the deep waters of Christian theology and theology and someone is, is preaching or they're teaching uh, on, on some of these passages here, you cannot listen passively if you hope to gain anything from, from the message. You have to engage in active listening. And what I mean by that is, is don't just listen in order to hear what I'm saying and more importantly, what the Bible is saying. No, I want you to listen in order to understand. There's a tremendous difference between listening to hear and listening to understand. And I hope that we will, will listen in order to understand this morning. Fight against the distractions, because I know there's going to be many. Fight against the distractions that are going to fight for your attention. Fight against the heaviness of eyelids that I'm sure that many of you are going to feel this morning as we, as we get going. Um, together, here's what I want us to do. Together, let's, let's dive deep into the waters of Scripture this morning and see what treasure we might find. Because I, I promise you, there is treasure to be found in the Word of God this morning. It's there, and we're, we're going to dig, and we're going to dive deep, and we're going we're gonna to find it together. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start looking at our text together. So let's pray together. Father, I feel completely inadequate in my ability to show the truth and the depth of your word this morning. God, I feel the weight of my own sin, the weight of my uh, inadequacies, Lord, and I, I desperately need your help. So I pray in Jesus' name that you will help me this morning to speak in a way that's clear, in a way that makes sense, 
in a way that edifies everyone who's listening, Lord. Father, without, without your Holy Spirit here with us, bringing light, bringing to light the things that we're, we're reading, Lord, all, all of this is, is pointless. So God, I pray that your, your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word for us this morning. God, I pray that, that your truth would transform us. God, I pray that it would, it would shape us, that you'd mold us into the people that you desire us to be. And God, I pray against the distractions that are sure to fight for our attention this morning. Father, may we focus with everything that we have on you. And God, I pray and I trust that we are going to hear from you this morning in your word. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a lot here this morning. As, as DJ was reading, I was like just thinking, man, there is, there's just a lot in, in this passage. And it's really, it's way more than I can explain in a sermon. But I've been praying that God would, would just give you a couple of things that you can, you can hold on to this morning. So uh, I want to give you a, a quick refresher on what was talked about last week because many of those same themes are going to be present as we continue uh, working through Romans 9 in the first part of, of chapter 10. Remember that last week we saw that God is the one who is sovereign in salvation. God is the one who saves sinners. God saves people who are far from him. We, we do not save ourselves. I am a Christian because of God. And if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're listening and you're a Christian, it is so because of God. The alternative would be for us to take credit for our salvation. Belonging to the family of God is a result of God's effectual call. The general call to repent and to believe it goes out to all people and we must be devoted to, uh, to seeing that all people hear the call to repent and believe in Jesus. But the effectual call of God, it summons particular individuals to receive the blessings of Christ's redemption. The Puritan Thomas Watson, he described God's election, God's choosing to save sinners this way. And I find it helpful and maybe you will as well. But Watson said, let us then ascribe the whole work of grace to the pleasure of God's will. God did not choose us because we were worthy, but by choosing us, he makes us worthy. No one is worthy of salvation. None of us deserve God's sovereign grace. But God in his mercy, he still chooses to save helpless sinners like you and me. Praise, praise God for that, right? Now, Looking, looking at our passage this morning, in verse 19, Paul is objecting to the question that I'm sure all of us have had at, at one time or another. And the question, it really stems from what Paul has been saying thus far in chapter 9. And specifically, it's, it, the, the objection comes from verses 16 to 18. So we didn't read it this morning, but verse 18 says, so then, it's talking about God. It says, so then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So the question, and Paul states it in verse 19, the question is, how is it possible that God can find anyone guilty of sin and a rejection of his son if it ultimately all depends on his will? I'm going to read that objection again. Here, here or the question here. 
The question is, how is it possible that God can find anyone guilty of sin and a rejection of his son if it all depends on his will? Now, that that is a really good question, right? I read of a a professor who was objecting to election as, as I've been explaining it and describing it, and he said something I think it's worth Reading. It's not long, but I think some of you might be feeling this, this same thing here. Here's what, here's what this guy said. He said, if God's will determines who will be saved, unbelievers could stand in the day of judgment and claim acquittal on the ground that they had done God's will. And that's, that's a pretty interesting point, right? And it, it really, it seems, it can seem like God is just being unfair with all of this. It seems like the uh, election, in the way that I'm explaining it, that it portrays God in an unjust light. But, but listen to me. Here's why I feel that, that the objection raised by the professor, I, I feel that it cannot be correct. And here's why. Because Paul, he anticipates this objection, and then he refutes it in verses 20 and 21. He, listen to what Paul writes. He says, but who are you? O man, to answer back to God. Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Friends, an essential characteristic of God is his freedom. And Paul is showing this to us here. God is free to act however he sees fit. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now I know that some of you hearing this, you may still have the objection that none of this is fair. It seems like what Paul is saying here, it cannot be true because it, it doesn't fit our definition of fairness. It doesn't fit our definition of justice. We have, to be, we have to be really careful here that we don't, we don't allow a Western sort of individualistic bias to creep into what we're, we're seeing in God's Word. We like to think that we are ultimately in charge of our destinies. We like to think that we ultimately are self-determining creatures. Now, we absolutely, we make real decisions We make real choices that have real consequences. But the truth of the matter is that God is the only one who is self-determining. The Bible makes this clear over and over again. We are not sovereign. God, God is the one who is sovereign. If he was not sovereign over all things, he would not be God. And God's sovereignty is not only over the big things, but even over the smallest details of our lives. Jesus shows this to us in Matthew 10, 26 through 33, where he talks about even the hairs on our head are numbered. God is sovereign over everything. And we cannot allow our our definition of fairness to cloud our judgment on what is true and what is right. Brothers and sisters, I I am grateful that Jesus did not object to his crucifixion by appealing to our definition of fairness. By our common definition of fairness, the crucifixion was the most unjust thing in the history of the world. 
But Isaiah, remember what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53.10. He says, it was the will of the Lord. It was the will of God to crush him. It was God's will that Christ go to the cross. And the fact that Christ would bear the weight of the sin for all his people and suffer and die upon the cross, it seems incredibly unfair. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to us. But remember, remember what Christ said He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Like our our Savior, that is our reaction as Christians when things don't make sense and when things just don't seem to be fair in our lives. Thy, thy will be done. I haven't lived a ton of years on this earth, but both my wife and I, we have had our, our fair share of hardships. We have lost children in the womb. We've had dreams and aspirations destroyed. We've had plenty of things happen to us that just don't seem to make sense. Things that have, have kind of left us questioning God. But here's, here's the thing, church. The deeper your relationship with God becomes... The more you know him, the easier it is for us to say those words, not my will, but yours be done. The more we grow in understanding the gracious character of God, the easier it becomes for us to trust him. Even when when everything seems to be working against us, we trust and we know that God is working all things together for our good, for those who love him. And this, this kind of theology of the, of the sovereignty of God and salvation and, and the sovereignty of God over all things, it can bring so much peace to an anxious heart. Trusting in God's sovereignty, it reduces, and I would say it even crushes our propensity to worry. I think this is part of the reason why Paul was able to rejoice so much even when he was, when he was in prison. This is part of the reason why James could write, consider it or count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Even, even on this journey that my family is on in, in church planting, we have peace in the midst of so much uncertainty because we trust in God's sovereignty. Instead of viewing the sovereignty of God and election as, as bitter pills that we have to just kind of swallow and force down, I hope you will see these things as tender and sweet doctrines that provide assurance and provide confidence to believers. God's mercy and God's justice are not compromised by his sovereignty and and they're not compromised by his, his sovereignty in election. Instead, God's fairness and his justice and his mercy, those things are unequivocally up upheld. I want, to, I want to pause here for just a second and spend a minute looking further at verse, verse 20. So at first glance, when we read that, it might seem like Paul is, is objecting to anyone, to anyone who would question God and what, what we're talking about. But I don't, I don't think that is what, what Paul's doing. A humble and a searching mind is a good thing. And Paul has no objection to anyone who seeks to understand as, as much of God, God's purposes and as much of, of God's plans as possible. However, and this is key, hear me church, Paul does have a problem when a person rejects and criticizes the truth that they discover. 
So here, here's, here's a little bit of an example of this. Has anyone ever had to work with a very inquisitive child before? You don't have to raise your hands, but I'm sure many of us have had that, that joy and that privilege. I know many, many of our, our parents who are at home and watching this, this service, I know that they deal with that on a daily basis. My wife and I, we certainly deal with this with our, our oldest daughter who just turned four a month ago. And there, there's, a, there's a big difference between a child who asks questions because they sincerely want to know the answer and a child who asks questions because they want to try and get the answer that they want. It's almost as if their line of questioning, it makes it seem like uh, they're, they're an opponent, opponent of some kind. It's like they're trying to manipulate you into getting the answer that they want. And some kids are really, really good at doing this. The truth is some Christians and even some theologians are good at doing this as, as well when it comes to asking questions of the Bible. So here, here's the point of what I'm trying to say. It's right and it's good to ask questions here as we're looking at election, as we're looking at the sovereignty of God. But let's make sure that we're asking questions as those who are seeking to understand. We should ask questions with a sincere, sincere desire to, to understand and to accept the answer that God gives us. So let's keep that in mind as we look at verses 21 to 24 now. Paul writes, Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. I want to camp out here for just a minute on these four verses. And I have, I have four things here that I want you to see. And we're going to go through these one by one here. First, God withholds his judgment so that he can more strikingly display his glory. God withholds his judgment so that he can more strikingly display his glory. Romans 9, it contains a number of references back to the book of Exodus in the, in the Old Testament. And we didn't look at that um, in much depth last time we were together, but our passage last week had multiple references to Pharaoh and to the Exodus story. And what Paul is saying in these verses here this morning, it immediately brings to mind Pharaoh. And it immediately brings to mind the exodus of God's people from Egypt. You remember, remember what happened in that story? The Israelites, they were, were multiplying so much in Egypt that the Egyptians, they ended up making those people their, their slaves. And after hundreds of years of slavery, Moses comes along and, and he, to, he comes along to deliver the people. But Pharaoh, he refuses to let the people go. I want you to listen to what God says to Moses and to Aaron, his brother who, was, who went with him. Listen to what God says even before all, all of that happened. This is from Exodus 7, and this is verses 2 to 5. This is God speaking. He says, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. 
And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people, people of Israel from among them. God, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And in the process of this, he displayed his glory to the Egyptians and the surrounding nations by humiliating the Egyptian enslavers and delivering his people. And years later, the surrounding nations and the surrounding peoples, they were, were still talking about God's deliverance of his people. In Joshua 2, Rahab is, is talking to the Israelite spies in Jericho. And she says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. God's glory and God's fame are displayed through what happened in Egypt. And God, God withheld immediate judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt so that he could more spectacularly display his glory. Friends, God, God does the same thing when it comes to his final judgment against sin. God is patiently permitting the rebellion of his creation to increase. He's allowing that to happen. And because of this, his victory will be all the more glorious. The Lord is slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And that, that brings us to another important observation here. And that's this, God's power and gracious character is displayed in his wrath. God's power and gracious character is displayed in his wrath. And here, here's what I mean by that. It is through God's wrath against the vessels of wrath, as Paul puts it, it's through God's wrath against the vessels of wrath that God's power is displayed. And this serves to magnify his gracious character towards the vessels of mercy. Power and mercy can be seen when we understand God's wrath against sin. We learn so much about God by understanding the nature of his wrath. Remember, God is completely just in punishing sinners. None of us deserve his mercy. All of us deserve his wrath. And all of us deserve his punishment. The wrath of God is not some sort of uh, temper tantrum that a child would throw. It's not uh, a scorned lover lashing out in anger. J.I. Packer described God's wrath this way in his book, Knowing God, which if you haven't read, you should get that book and read it if you desire to know more about the character of God. But listen to what, what Packer says. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God's wrath is a necessary reaction to objective moral evil. His wrath against vessels of wrath is completely just. And this only, this only serves to highlight the riches of his glory towards vessels of mercy. Now there's, there's two terms that I've been using here, and Paul uses them in verses 22 and 23. Those terms are vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And I think it would be good 
for everyone listening, either here, here in, at the Y or if you're watching online, I think it'd be good for, for everyone to ask this question of themselves, which one of those two am I? The only way to distinguish between vessels of wrath and, well, really, there's only one way. There's only one way to distinguish between vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. The person who embraces and trusts in Christ for salvation is, is the vessel of mercy. The one who places their faith in Christ is the vessel of mercy. The one who rejects Christ is a vessel of wrath. And it would bring tremendous uh, joy to my heart to know that some of you either here in person and on, or online, it bring me a tremendous amount of joy if you would realize this morning that you are in fact a vessel of mercy. When the Holy Spirit brings conviction and, and you're brought to repentance, you are converted to a new person in Christ. And vessels of mercy are known to be so through an embracing and a trusting in Christ. And I pray this morning that someone somewhere listening to this will trust in Christ for the first time this morning. And I pray that someone somewhere will prove to be a vessel of mercy. Friends, it's through the wrath of God that we see both his power and also we see his mercy. Here's my, my third point for you here. God is the sole basis for belonging to the true people of God. God is the sole basis for belonging to the true people of God. Look again at verses 24 to 26. It says, Even us whom he has called, not, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her, who, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The book of Hosea is a, a beautiful example of God's unfathomable love towards his people. And we don't, we don't have time to go into all of this this morning, but the, the, the theology and basic message of Hosea is that God greatly loves his people. And you should read, maybe after you read Knowing God, read through Hosea if you've never done that before. Paul looks to Hosea to demonstrate that it's, it's only because of God that anyone is able to belong to the true people of God. It's only through God's call and God's pursuit of us that we're able to call him Father. If we, were, if we were left to our own devices, we would all run to everything besides God. We naturally, we make idols out of things and we place those things as, as the kings, as the rulers of, of our hearts. Our hearts are captured in sin and death and we learn this from Paul in Romans 5. Without God, without him intervening and saving us, every one of us would be on the path towards destruction. But God, in his, in his mercy, he has looked at people who are far from him and said, you are mine. If you're a Christian, I want you to understand that that is your story. That, that, is, that is my story. God and his choice to save us from the path of destruction is the basis for all salvation. That's the basis for our, our salvation. It comes down, church, it comes down to the free choice of God. 
All human beings, we, we've made our choices. And the choice will always be towards sin and towards ourselves. But God's choice of, of his people, it frees us from our destructive choice. God is the sole basis for belonging to the true people of God. And Paul shows us that this has always, this has always been the intent of Scripture when he quotes from both Hosea and Isaiah. Here's, here's another thing I want you to see from these verses here. And that's that God's love and mercy, they know no ethnic bounds. God's love and mercy know, K-N-O-W, know, N-O, ethnic bounds. This call of God, this election by God for salvation, it's not limited to an ethnic group. And this would be something especially important for the ethnically Jewish members of the Roman church to hear. And this is something, this is something that the church today needs to, to hear and dwell on as well. Racism and ethnocentrism, they have no place in the family of God. God's love and his mercy, they are available to all people. And we, we should be intentional about offering God's love and mercy to, to, all, to all, all people. Our evangelism, it should never be limited to people who look and think and act like us. So in case you haven't realized yet, we have, we have a, uh, an extremely rich and deep passage of Scripture this morning. And I, I don't want to leave too much meat on the bone here, but we've, we've got to move quickly through this, this next part. So verses 30 to 33 are Paul's way of summing up everything that he has just said. And that's what he's saying when he introduces this this part of our passage by saying, what shall we say then? He's he's summing everything up that he's he's said. And here's basically what Paul is saying in verses 30 to 33. He's saying that faith is what is necessary in attaining a right relationship with God. Faith is necessary. It's only by accepting Christ in faith that a person can find righteousness that is promised in the law. Israel missed the purpose of the law. Israel failed to achieve um, the righteousness that can be found in the law because they they tried to, to seek that in their own works. And Israel could never meet the law's demands. Israel failed to understand that Christ is the end and the the goal. Christ is the, the goal and the, the end of the path that they have been walking. It's not through the law, but through Christ's righteousness. Um, it's not through the law, but through Christ that righteousness is available to everyone who believes. It's, it's impossible for us to gain any kind of righteous standing through our own works. And we've, we've seen this as we've looked through Romans. We're justified by, by grace through faith. Now it's here, there's here that... Um, the issue of divine sovereignty and human responsibility really begin to come up in Romans 9. We talked about it a little bit last week, and you maybe saw the tension in a couple of things that I just said. There's a real tension between God's sovereignty and salvation and human responsibility. And Paul, Paul doesn't even raise this point until now in the passage, verses 30 to 33. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign in salvation and, and human beings are responsible before God for their sin and their rejection of him. So verses, verses 6 to 29 of Romans 9, they show us why anyone is saved. It's because of God's election. And it's because of God's free choice to save. 
Verses 30 to 33 show us why anyone is lost. It's because of willful disobedience and sin. It's because they've they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Friends, Christ is either the one whom we rest our faith on or he is a stumbling stone to us. He's an offense to us. In our passage, our passage this morning, it closes the same way that Paul opened up at the beginning of Romans 9. And here again, we see Paul's desire for, for his people to come to truly know and truly embrace Christ as the Savior. Paul writes, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I want to point out to you that Paul, Paul is not just talking about people who, who are his friends and who are his, his family members. Many of, many of the Jews, they had been enemies towards Paul. They have caused him, him physical harm. They have tried to, to kill him even. They have they've fought and argued with him over who Jesus is. But Paul still loves them. He still cares for their souls. Church, not only must we care about the eternal state of our friends and family, but we must care about our enemies and those who oppose those who oppose us, who oppose the gospel. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. It's easy, it's easy to desire and pray that those that we love would, would come to trust in Christ. It's much more difficult to, to pray and to sincerely desire for our enemies to come to Christ for salvation. But that, that is part of what Paul is modeling for us here. So I, I, hope, I hope that we can be like Paul in a lot of ways, but especially, especially in this regard that I'm gonna, I'm gonna share with you here. Especially in this regard that we, we trust, we rest and trust that God is the one who saves sinners, but we passionately seek after the lost with the good news of the gospel. It's so, it's so easy for us to get confused when we look at the sovereignty of God and human responsibility here in Romans 9. It would be, it would be much easier, believe me, it would be much easier for me to just kind of skip over this chapter or jump to another place in the Bible as soon as, as Roman, Romans 9 comes up or to just sort of dismiss this chapter as, as an aside that, that Paul was kind of going off, but he doesn't mean what it seems like he's saying. It, it would be much easier for me to do that. Um, but that's, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to look and see what, what Paul is saying. So there's, there's quite a few things that I've tried to point out to you. I know, I know it's kind of been a lot this morning, um, but all, all of the things that I've tried to show you, those things are important. But if you've fallen asleep, wake up now, and if you gain nothing else from our talk on Romans 9, know, know these things here. God is the one who saves sinners. If we are truly Christians, it is because of God. The alternative is to take credit for our salvation. Belief and trust in Christ is the proof that we actually belong to him. The display of God's wrath against sin only displays his glory in a more striking manner. And friends, we come to Christ for rest. Rest from our works rest from our attempts at self-justification, we rest in the finished work of Christ. We're now at the part in our service where 
all of us who belong to Jesus, we have an opportunity to remember what he has done for us as we celebrate communion. Remember, church, that we, we commune not with a dying and defeated Savior, but with a Savior who lives and reigns. Communion is, is a family meal. And only those who belong to the family of God by grace through faith in Christ may partake of this. If you're here today and you're, you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here, but, but please just observe this next part of the service. Church, when we take communion together, we remember the death and the resurrection of our Savior, and we remember that he is coming back to gather all who are his. May this communion meal, may it uh, nourish and sustain us who belong to Christ. And may we remember that this meal, it symbolizes and it affects the unity of believers in this congregation and in all places at all times. So I'm going to pray, and then you can, you can make your way forward as you feel led to receive this meal here with, with joy, with reverence, and in faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your son. Father, thank you for sending him to die on our behalf, Lord. Thank you that your, your mercy and grace can be found at the foot of the cross. Father, thank you that you have saved us. Lord, I pray now as we come and take communion together, Lord, that we will be reminded of the sweet fellowship that we have in you through Christ. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Your glory is 
so beautiful.